Friends, join me in prayer one more time before we look to the Bible. We have no sufficiency in ourselves. We're dependent completely upon God, and he's faithful to help us and minister to us. So let's ask him to do that now. Let's pray. Our Father, we come now to look to your word, and just like everything else that we've done this morning, unless you minister to us, nothing good's going to happen. And so we ask that you would come by your spirit and minister to us in power. We pray that you would give us eyes to see as we look to your word and as we think, even in an overview way about Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we pray that you would show us your grace, that you would show us the unshakable nature of the promises that you've made to us in Christ. And we pray that you would show us Jesus and that as we see and behold him, that we would have our faith sustained and strengthened and that we would be stirred up to love, not only to love you, but to love others. And so we pray for your grace now and for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, as you read the letters of the New Testament, you'll notice that Paul and Peter both begin basically all of their letters with the greeting of grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice as well as you read the letters of Paul that he also, almost without exception, ends his letters that way. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's no small thing to consider in thinking about the posture of those respective apostles and how they understood the Christian life and how they would even understand that they should greet Christians or how they should sign off in a letter that they had written to a congregation. Grace and peace to you. Grace, we need it all the time. The Christian life is all of grace from beginning to end. We have a tendency sometimes to think that we need a lot of grace at the front, and obviously nobody's going to rip their own body from the grave, so we're going to need some grace at the end. But we can lose sight of the fact that we need grace every moment we're breathing. That we are always in need of it, and we are always debtors to it. We need it all the time because we're sinners. Because our flesh is corrupt. Because, like we've thought about at various points today, we do stuff that we shouldn't do. We want things we shouldn't want. We think things we shouldn't. We feel things we shouldn't. And we need grace. We need grace all the time because we're weak. And in our own strength, we will not do this thing called the Christian life. Peace. We need it too. All the time. Because again, we are sinners. We don't just need to be told once when we trust the Lord Jesus Christ that you've now got peace with God. Because of the fact that we keep sinning, this means that our consciences are often troubled. This means that because we are now grieved at the thought of sinning against God, that when we do, all kinds of feelings well up within us. We tend to carry around very heavy burdens of guilt and shame and fear. And so we need to be reminded continually, every day 
we're breathing, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of Him, not us. Because of what He's done, not because of what we do. At the heart of the message about Christ, at the heart of the gospel, we find grace and we find peace. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be looking today at the very end of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is the last sermon in this series. It's always amazing for me in my life how like, we start a series, there's a lot of work that goes into it, and then we're trucking along, and then suddenly it's gone. And then there'll be another sermon series next week that's more of preacher talk. I won't bore you with that. If you don't have a Bible with you today, though, don't sweat it. We're going to get the verses to Ephesians 6 up on the screen behind me. Um, just a note for you. Um, if you don't have, happen to have a personal Bible with you, talk with one of us, uh, myself, with Mackenzie, before you leave today. Uh, we'd be happy to try to hook you up with a copy of God's Word so that you can have that. Now that I've made a number of comments and you've had ample time to turn to Ephesians 6, uh, we're going to look now at verses 21 to 24. And so before we go any further, I'm going to read these words for us as we listen now to God's Word together, beginning in Ephesians 6 and verse 21. So that you also may know how I am, I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen. Just a few verses for our consideration this morning. So what I want to do is effectively consider this message in three parts, three pieces. First, we're going to survey the verses. That won't take a terribly long time because they're very simple, they're very straightforward. Then what I would like to do after that in the second part is to give effectively an overview of the letter so that as we look back, as years pass, and we think of Ephesians, we can say, yes, that's what Ephesians is about. And then thirdly, what I want to do is give a more personal and pastoral sort of sign-off to this sermon series and to this letter. So we're going to take those one part at a time. Part one, let's consider these verses together for just a moment. In verses 21 and 22 of Ephesians 6, Paul is concluding the letter. He's written a number of things to the saints in Ephesus, and he says, so that you may know how I'm doing and know what I'm doing, I have sent Tychicus to you. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. Now, this man named Tychicus, it's an interesting name, of course, not, we might call him Ty in our day, right? Tychicus served Paul for some time. He's mentioned several places in the New Testament. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 20. He is mentioned in Colossians chapter 4. He is mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He is mentioned as well in Titus chapter 3. So that's several mentions by Paul or by Luke as he wrote the book of Acts regarding this man. So he clearly had served the Lord for some time and had also served alongside Paul for some time. And Paul says, I'm sending this man to you or have sent him to you. He's probably the one who had brought the letter to them in the first place, right? I've sent this man to you so that he might update you on how I'm doing and what I'm doing. And also, you can see, verse 22, so that he may also encourage your hearts. 
presumably that would be, not only through the update that he would give, but also through the ministry that he would do amongst the believers in Ephesus while he was with them. It's interesting as you read the New Testament to see how often ministry goes like this. Ministry amongst the churches in the New Testament is something that's very personal. You see over and over again this refrain of an apostle saying something to the effect of, we are sending this person to you because we know him and we know you and we know that he will be an encouragement to you. So that kind of personal ministry and that kind of personal recommendation, that kind of personal sending of a person to go do ministry amongst other Christians is as old as the church. With respect to the relationship between Paul and the Ephesian believers, there is a sweetness about these words that he's written. It's all very human. It's very flesh and blood. A lot of times, I think, when we read the Scripture, we remember rightly that it is the Word of God. And thereby, sometimes, though, we can conclude that some of these things are a little bit detached from our day-to-day life on earth, with our feet on the ground. But verses like this remind us that, yes, the Scriptures are the Word of God, and they were written by human beings And they were written, these letters were, to other human beings who were living life just like we do. It's all very personal. It seems very clear, even from these words, that there is mutual, not only a knowing of one another, but a mutual concern and affection for each other. Paul is assuming that the Ephesian Christians would care how he's doing. And that they would care to know even what he's doing. And he is concerned for them that they would not be misinformed and thereby worried about him, but that they might be encouraged, even as he is imprisoned, that they would be encouraged in the Lord, even through this faithful man that Paul has sent to them. Paul was an apostle, true, but he was no robot. He was not some cyborg that just went around preaching the gospel all the time, impervious to suffering, impervious to weakness or pain. He experienced all of those things. He was discouraged. He despaired even of life itself. We read those words this morning. The Ephesian Christians, as I've already said, would have no doubt cared how Paul was doing. And it's good for us, just as we think a little bit and meditate on a verse like verse 21 or verse 22, that yes, we have a living and eternal hope. Yes, it is true that this life is not all there is. No, this life is not ultimate. And yet, we care for each other in this life. That matters. Put your eyes on verses 23 and 24. We're going to just kind of survey these things because in these two verses are several words that really pick up on major themes of the letter, and we're going to get to those in just a moment. Paul says, peace to the brothers. And whenever you see that word brothers, especially in your English Standard Version, that is a very general term that is used for the saints. So you can even insert their brothers and sisters. This is to the men and women of the congregation. Peace be to the saints. And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace, love, and faith. These are all gifts that God bestows upon us in His Son, and they come equally from the Father and from Jesus. And then finally in verse 24, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And by incorruptible, he just means a love that doesn't die. By God's grace, as he's made us alive together with Christ, we have been given a love for Jesus that doesn't die. 
doesn't mean that our love is perfect. It means that God sustains even our own love for Him. So grace be with all the saints. Peace, love, faith, grace. All have been prominent themes in Ephesians, which brings us to the second part of today's message, which is effectively an overview of the whole letter. I know many out there are concerned. We're going to do this very high level, like 30,000 feet. You will be helped if you have your Bible. You can turn back to Ephesians 1 and verse 1. I'm not going to be pointing to specific verses necessarily, but I'm going to try to give us a, a good summary of some of the wonderful truths contained in this letter. And again, my goal right now, let's just say for the next 20 minutes or so, is to give us a sense of the whole thing. And my hope is that if you think about Ephesians in a year or two or three, you're able to kind of say, yeah, that, that is what Ephesians is about. I remember what Ephesians is about. And it's really good news. May God give us grace that it lands on us that way, even right now. Chapter 1 of Ephesians is about God's eternal, unshakable promises to us. All of them realized in and through Jesus Christ. Paul begins after he has greeted the saints in Ephesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins to tell them of God's love for them, and he begins to tell them of God's plans that include them. He begins to tell them about the purposes of God for them that are unshakable. He says that we in Jesus Christ have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He doesn't say we've been given a bunch of blessings. He doesn't say we've been given most of the blessings. We've been given every spiritual blessing. In other words, there's nothing that we need that we've not been given. There's nothing that we could ever need that Christ has not accomplished for us. We're not chasing after blessing. God has already promised them to us and has given them to us in His Son. Lest we think that our salvation is a fragile thing, Paul begins after he writes that we've been given every spiritual blessing in verse 3 of chapter 1. In verse 4, he tells us that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So your salvation and mine hails from eternity past. This is not something that is contingent upon your strength or your perseverance or your brightness or your sensitivity that led you to make some great decision for God. God in His grace and in His love determined to save you in His Son and has made it so. We have been, he goes on, verse 5, that we have been predestined for adoption as children of God. We were once orphans. We didn't have a home. We were once orphans and didn't have a family. But God has determined that through Jesus Christ, we would be adopted into His own family. We would be given a name. We would be given a name that is new, a status that is new. We would be guaranteed an inheritance. And we didn't have any of that stuff. Paul goes on that through Jesus and through His bloodshed, we have redemption. And we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. In Christ, saints, you are forgiven. It's a scandalous message. 
It's a scandalous message in today's world when we are all seeking for forgiveness and grace and mercy, and it's nowhere to be found. But Paul says, through the blood of Christ, we have redemption. And our sins, though they are many, are forgiven. And then he goes on to reiterate that this has been God's plan all along. From before the world began, everything that God has been revealing, beginning with Genesis 1-1, which is where we're going to be next week as a church, everything has been about this. It has been about saving His people through Christ. And then upon us being united to Christ by faith, Paul tells the saints that we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that God said He would send. The Holy Spirit that God said He would pour out on all of His people. The Holy Spirit dwelled with God's people. He now lives in us. And we have been sealed unto the day of salvation as God Himself has taken up residence within us. We have an inheritance that is eternal, Paul says, and it is guaranteed. The giving of the Holy Spirit to us is the down payment of our final salvation and it is the guarantee that we will inherit the kingdom of God. We will be co-heirs with Jesus Christ. All of this because of the plan and the purposes of God. And then toward the end of chapter 1, Paul prays for the Ephesians that God would give them. And he's, he's praying these things for the saints in Ephesus. He's praying these things for the saints in Asheville, North Carolina right now. He prays that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. And what in particular does He pray they would see? That they would know the hope that God had called them to. The Apostle prays that we even would know the hope to which we have been called. This life is hard. It's full of pain. It's full of suffering. It's full of loss. It's full of sin. And all of it one day will be no more. And God has promised that He Himself will administer perfect justice and that He Himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And Paul says, we have been called to such a hope that we will see Christ as He is, that we will be with Him where He is, and that sorrow and pain and suffering will be no more. Remember the hope that you've been called to. He prays that the Ephesians would know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. This is a mind blow. That God will be glorified in saving us. And that God will find great joy in bringing us into His kingdom forever. Though we have sinned and struggled throughout. It will be God's joy because of Christ to look at you and me and say, well done. Enter into my joy forever. Paul prays that the Ephesians would know how great the power of God is toward them in Christ. And in particular, he points to the fact that the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is at work in us. And lest we be concerned about anything, Jesus is greater than everything. And Jesus has been given to the church. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, in particular verses 1 to 18, Paul emphasizes to the Ephesian believers and thereby to us, he emphasizes God's power, God's mercy, and grace toward us unto salvation. 
All of it through Christ. All of it received by faith. He begins at the beginning of chapter 2 to tell us what we were at one time. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. Not physically dead. We're doing stuff. But dead in an eternal sense and dead in a spiritual sense. We were following, he says, the course of the world. Like a piece of debris on a stream. We were just being carried wherever the world would take us. We were enslaved to the one who is called the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. And we were enslaved, living according to our passions and desires. We were ruled by our cravings. And we were by nature, Paul says, children of wrath. But now, he says, beginning in verse 4, it's not like that anymore. And it's not like that anymore, not because of you, because of God, and because of His great love, and because He's rich in mercy. He has made us alive now together with Christ. We have been united with Jesus, and we learn that that is all grounded in grace, not merit. We could never earn it. We could never do it. It had to be given. And it is all happening and it's all applied to us through faith, not what we do. We're not keeping the law and thereby earning righteousness. We are given what Christ has done by trusting the promises of God in Christ. Paul tells the Ephesians, you have been saved by grace through faith. That salvation, all of it from beginning to end, is the gift of God. Not one bit of it can you earn. This is so that no one may boast. As the prophet Jeremiah wrote, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. Jesus has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Paul says that we are God's workmanship. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ that no one could boast. And we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has already prepared for us to walk in. He goes on to reiterate in a corporate sense to the Ephesian Christians who were Gentiles by birth. He says, you once were far off. God for a long time had dealt with Israel. He had made covenants with Israel. And you were strangers to those covenants. You were alienated from all of that. You were far away. You were cut off. You were without God. You were hopeless. But now, through the blood of Christ, what He has accomplished and His sacrifice in your place, you've been brought near. Jesus, He says in verse 14, Jesus Himself is our peace. Peace with each other and peace with God. He has reconciled Jew and Gentile to one another in the church. Jesus did this by a whole host of ways, or in a whole host of ways, but primarily by fulfilling and abrogating the ceremonial law that had divided Jew and Gentile for a long time. 
So Jesus has brought Jew and Gentile. He has brought all people together in the church under him. And he has reconciled all of us to God by the blood of his cross. Then in verses 19 of chapter 2 through verse 13 of chapter 3, Paul reiterates to the Ephesians that through Christ and the power of God, we are now the church of God. Jew and Gentile, male and female, all built on the teaching of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone, meaning he bears all the weight. He's done it all. Christ is the cornerstone, meaning he is the stone upon which every other stone is oriented. He is the plumb line and the true north of the church. Everything about the church is about Christ and what he has done. The apostles sought to do nothing other than to found a church on Christ. Then a shocking statement that he makes in the latter portion of chapter 2, that we, sinners that we are, are being made into God's dwelling place on earth. He tells us, Paul does, that this has always been God's plan. That there was a mystery concerning Christ that was hidden for ages in God that has now become more clearly and manifestly revealed. Namely, that God always intended to save the nations, people from every tribe and language and nation, under Christ, in the church, all to the praise of His glorious grace. The church is God's plan. And then at the end of chapter 3, Paul Praise again for the Ephesian Christians. He prays that God would give them strength in their inner being so that Christ might dwell in them richly through faith. And then Paul says effectively that the greatest thing that could happen for the Ephesians is to know the height, the depth, the length, the breadth of the love of Christ for them. And that in knowing that, to be filled with all the fullness of God. Then we get to chapter 4. The entire last half of the letter is summed up under the heading of chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk, live in a manner worthy according to the calling to which you've been called. And that does not mean live in such a way that you're worthy of Jesus. Live in such a way that you're worthy of salvation. Live in such a way that you're the kind of person that God would have been happy to save in the first place. Not what it means at all. What it means is, in light of Christ and what He's done, in light of the grace of God, in light of the unshakable promises of God for you, live in a way commensurate with the gospel. Live in a way that's in accord with all of that. And then He's going to write for a little while about what that would look like. He begins... His first exhortations, walk in a manner worthy, walk in a way commensurate with Christ and the gospel, he begins with humility amongst each other. He begins with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Be humble, be gentle, be patient, love each other, pursue unity. He then grounds that unity in the fact that there is one body of Christ, there is one Holy Spirit, 
there is one hope to which we've all been called. He grounds it further. He says there's one Lord, namely Jesus. One faith that says by works of the law, no man will ever be justified. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It is the righteousness of God by faith for all those who believe in Jesus Christ. We have one faith. And there's one baptism that is significant of our union with Jesus Christ and the fact that God has made a promise and a pledge to keep us. And there is one God and Father of all. Pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul goes on to say that Christ gave gifts to the church to equip the church. He gave gifts like the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists. He gives gifts like pastors and teachers so that the church is equipped, so that the saints are equipped to do ministry, and so that the church will be grounded in sound teaching. So that we won't be like little children, knocked all over the place by strong winds of doctrine or by waves of change. But that we would hold fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But then he goes on. That the whole body of Christ, meaning every single member of it, when it is functioning properly, builds itself up in love. We all have a part to play. Then in the latter half of chapter 4, Paul goes on to talk about for a while the fact that we are not who we used to be. Amen? We are not who we used to be. We have a new identity now. He uses the language of putting off the old self or the old man and putting on the new man or the new self. And this is all about identity. You have an identity in Christ now. You are no longer who you once were. Remember who you are. Remember Christ and live in such a way. He goes on to unpack some of these things. How would we live together? In addition to what he's already written, how would we live together in light of the new identity that we have? He encourages us to use our speech, beginning in verse 25 of chapter 4, to build other people up and not tear other people down. He says that we should not allow anger and bitterness to fester amongst us. And there's that verse that's relatively well known that's often ripped out of context about giving the devil a foothold. Giving the devil a foothold is not written to you as an individual. It's written to churches about anger and division. Anger festering amongst the saints is the devil's playground. Paul goes on that we should not destroy the unity of the church by biting and devouring one another because this grieves the Holy Spirit. There's another verse. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit has everything to do with the unity of the church. Don't assault and attack the unity of the church that God himself has given her. Paul says we are to put away Ephesians 4.31, we are to put away anger and malice and hatred and all of those things. Verse 32, we're to be kind to one another, tenderhearted. There's that tenderness, that gentleness again. And then forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Paul says that we are to walk in love toward one another. Here's the beginning of chapter 5. 
to be an imitator of God. Therefore, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. You want to be an imitator of God? Walk in love toward the same. Then he goes on to talk about how we are to flee from sin and immorality. We ought not joke about immorality. Sexual immorality in particular is in view. It's not a joking matter, but we should not take part in it, he says. Rather than taking part in works of darkness and works of evil, Paul says that we should use God's law to expose sin for what it is. We should bring it into the light. In bringing it into the light, sinners are able to see their sin for what it is and are thereby driven to Christ. We are encouraged to do just this, to not only bring sin into the light, to not only hope that sinners are crushed by the law, but to show them, to herald Christ, that they may taste and see that the Lord is good. In the latter portion of chapter 5, Paul encourages us to gather together regularly to encourage one another in Christ. He specifically mentions the gathering to sing. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. He encourages us to gather to pray. And then he moves on to talk about the fact that we, in honoring one another, in pursuing humility and all of these great things, we mutually submit one to another out of reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he illustrates what that looks like by using three different sets of relationships, which brings us to the very end of the letter, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 6, where we are to put on the armor of God in order to stand in this battle that we fight against Satan and the forces of darkness. And as we considered last week, this armor of God is none other than Jesus Christ for us. The armor of God is not something that you can produce. The armor of God passages are not about your diligence and discipline to put it on. The armor of God is about what God has done for us in Christ and what he has given us that we might rest and stand in it and thereby withstand the devil. And then finally, the sign-off of the letter. Paul says to the Ephesians that, just so you know how I'm doing and what I'm doing, Tychicus will tell you, I've sent him to you so that he'll encourage you. Grace and peace to you. That's Ephesians. Now, last piece of today's message. This is more us. This is me as one of us. This is me as a pastor of this church, sort of giving a personal and pastoral sign-off to this letter and the things that we've been, been considering, excuse me, for a number of weeks now. I don't have these numbered. If you're taking notes, I apologize for that. First thing, saints of CBC know, in light of God's word, know that God has you. By saying that God has you, I mean that in a comforting way. He has you. You're safe. God has loved you. He has planned to save you. He has adopted you. And he delights to do all of that. Him saving you is not something that he is bound to do. It is something that brings him joy to save you in his son. Secondly, and related to this, Christ 
has saved you. And he is enough for you. And by saying that he is enough, I don't mean anything sentimental. I don't mean this kind of like, Christ is enough for me on my bad days to make me feel better. It's not what I mean. I mean that Christ is enough for you to know that you know that you know that you have peace with God today and you will have peace with God forever. He is enough for forgiveness of sins. Even if you have sinned the lights out of it, he is enough. He is enough for absolution. I don't care how much guilt you're carrying. You are absolved of all guilt in the Lord Jesus Christ. That burden has been taken from you. Jesus has said to you in a personal way, that burden that you're carrying, I'll take that and I will carry it for you. And I will in turn give you a burden that is light and easy and I will give you rest for your soul. Jesus, brothers and sisters, is also enough for righteousness. You have been given all of the righteousness of Christ. Perhaps I say this all the time because I need to hear it all the time because I tend to not trust it. There's got to be something I need to do. There's got to be some way that I can get better that's going to mean something for my standing. No. All of the righteousness that could ever be required is already ours by faith in Christ. What freedom. What joy. Now, all of that stuff, I hope we see how that will help me in my bad day, but it's not sentimental. It's objective. It's rock on which we stand. You want to know how great the love of God is for you? You want to know how safe you are in Christ? Christ would quite literally, friends, have to be pulled down from heaven and put back in the grave for you to be unsafe. That's a shocking, like an astonishing thought. Because he's alive, and because he reigns, because he will forever, we are secure. You have peace, and you have rest. In saying all of this, and even in acknowledging my own struggle to trust it, and thereby, assuming in every good way I can that you struggle to trust it too. We have a constant need of this gospel. We have a constant need that this news would be preached and sung and prayed and confessed and partaken of. It's because we have a lot of suspicions about how God feels about us. Deep down, we worry that God's feelings about us is tethered to how we're doing. That God's approval of us is tethered to how we're performing. And so we need to be reminded at least once a week in a gathering like this that that's not the case. And that He has approved us and that He has accepted us and adopted us and declared us righteous and has saved us once and for all in His Son. Because the Christian life is never about what we do for Jesus. It's about what he has done for us. And this is how we have peace with God that never changes. If it depends on you at all, if it depends on me at all, our peace with God will ebb and flow by the moment.
next. In light of all of that, that wonderful security, the promises of God, His faithfulness, the righteousness of Christ, all of that, live in a way that's commensurate with that. Live. Don't live chasing after your status with God. Don't live chasing after acceptance. Live in freedom unto righteousness. Live in freedom unto love for your brothers and sisters and for your neighbor. Now that you're not having to freak out all the time about how you're doing and you're trusting Christ and you're in the church and you're growing in the faith through gatherings like this and interactions with others and reading the word and prayer and all of those things, as you're growing, God's going to take care of you and your sanctification. I can concern myself with doing good works that will bless my neighbor. In line with all of this, love each other. How would we not love each other in light of what God has done for us? In, in light of the fact that we come from all kinds of different places, every one of us ruined before the Lord, and now we have been brought together and the thing that unifies us is Christ, how could we not love each other? Consider each other. We've talked about unity, division, and all of those kinds of things that do exist, not only in society, but exist in the church. What's the answer for that? There's not a simple one. But where it has to start is humility and love that then mean we humbly seek to understand each other. The only hope that we really have for meaningful unity in a life like we live is to humbly seek to understand other people who might think differently than we do. And my God, if we can't do that in the church, then where can it be done? One of the greatest ways that we can demonstrate love is to seek understanding, to get over ourselves, and to not assume that we know how other people think and work and operate. To not assume that we have had experiences like they've had. This doesn't mean that we throw truth to the sideline, far from it, but it means that we can humbly and meaningfully and intentionally and sincerely engage because we love each other. We have a unity in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are to seek to protect and preserve. And it is a wonderful message that we have a unity in Christ that far outstrips anything over which we could ever divide. And so we live that way. Next thing. Build your life around the local church. If you're a member here, that would mean CBC. If you're not a member here and you're a member of another church, it would mean that church. Build your life around a local church. That sounds insane to say in our day. Because Christianity is so individualized like everything else in life. We want community because we want to be around people sometimes, but really we want to do our own thing. My word of encouragement to each of us. You want to discipline yourself for one thing. If you're going to discipline yourself for one thing, keep showing up here every Sunday and see what God will do with that for the rest of your lifetime. Show up here every week and see what God will do with that over the course of decades. He will do far more with it than you think he will. 
We tend to severely overestimate what can be done in the short term, and we tend to severely underestimate what God can do over the long term. Let's not do that. Ordinary faithfulness, showing up. And let that showing up here drive your life in living in community together. It is much easier to live life connected to these people when we all show up here once a week. We're in the same place at the same time on Sunday morning. We sit under the same doctrine, the same gospel, the same pastors, the same everything. We are together. We are united in Christ. We see each other. We talk about our weeks. We make plans, and we end up living life together. alongside this encouragement to build your life around the local church. Saints, watch over each other. Watch over each other. Sin is real. Satan is real. Our flesh and the cravings of it are strong. Every person in this room, if he or she is honest, has thought about doing things in the last week or month or year that we would be horrified at the thought of everybody knowing. How is it that God in his grace keeps us? Well, often he keeps us through the church and through our brothers and sisters who talk to us and say, brother, sister, don't go there. Don't do that. He does that through the encouragement that we receive by being in one another's lives. Watch over each other and take care of each other. Next, you are not who you used to be. Praise God, you're not. I'm not either. We talk all the time about how the Christian life is not clean and linear and the progress is oftentimes all over the place. And at the same time, the transformation of life is real. We are not who we used to be. We have a new identity in Christ now. And so we live accordingly. So in thinking about that and thinking about who you were and who you are now, it's not complicated. Remember who you are. Remember who you are in Christ. And remember Jesus and what he has done for you. Remember that you've been united to him and that you are no longer under the dominion of sin and that you actually in your heart want to obey God. And you in your heart are grieved by the thought of offending him. And that you are no longer under the law, but you're under grace. And you are now free to pursue obedience and good works, because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Next, we're getting near the end, I promise. This life is intense. It's hard. We've talked about our sin. We've talked about the flesh. Paul tells us in this letter that we don't even primarily wage war against flesh and blood but that we wage war against Satan and all the forces of darkness that make up the power of the air. And so, as we thought about last week, put on Christ. Christ for us is the armor of God, the truth about Him, His righteousness for you, the gospel that He accomplished, which gives us peace, His salvation that He worked for us, the Word of God that bears witness about Him, Notice that even in this letter and in so many other letters like it in the New Testament, the letter begins with Jesus and it ends with Jesus. So does the Christian life. It begins with him and ends with him and everything in the middle is about him too. Put on Christ. Last exhortation. 
pray. Pray for each other. The exhortations to prayer in this letter are not individual, they are corporate. Pray for the saints. Make that a part of your habits and your routines and rhythms of life as you think about praying. Think about your brothers and sisters and pray for them. And pray for the congregation. As you do that, pray for the pastors of this church. Paul says that he needed prayer. I trust that we do too. We need you to pray for us. That we would have wisdom. That the ministry of God's word would be faithful and powerful here. That we would lead us according to God's word and wisdom and righteousness and all of those things. Pray for your pastors. And now that all of that has been said, beloved, grace to you. Grace to you. You will struggle. You will be weak. And God's grace is sufficient. Don't ever look to yourself or your circumstances. Don't ever, as evidence of God's grace to you, look to your life. Your life is not the evidence of God's grace to you. Christ's life is. You want to see God's grace? Look to Christ and what He's done for you. You will sin, not because you want to, but because you're weak. And there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. You cannot, as one of his children, you cannot out the grace of Christ and take part in that. And lastly, peace to you. Because this life is full of pain and fearful things. Things will happen to you that you have no control over. And even when it comes to things that you can control, you're going to blow it sometimes. But take heart, because Jesus has overcome the world. He has conquered every sin for those who trust in him, and he will make all things new. He came the first time to save you. He will come again to get you and to make his blessings flow far as the curse is coming. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the words of our Savior himself, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And all the saints say amen. Jesus himself is our peace, now and forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray very simply for ourselves that we would believe the promises that you make to us. We pray very simply, even as we've read those words that Christ spoke many years ago, that we would believe him, that he has gone to prepare a place for us and that he will come back to bring us to that place to be with him where he is. Father, as we ask for you to sustain our faith, we pray that you would encourage our hearts at that thought, that Christ has saved us, that he has us, and that he's coming back for us. 
We pray that you would keep ministering to us even in the table that we are about to partake of. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.